Rue. Um, I am a father um, and a husband. Um, I am a father to two kids, Manny and Zoe. Um, Manny just started first grade at Child for Falls, and Zoe, um, who's four, will be entering her last year. I guess you call it pre-K here, um, but will be in pre-K in a couple weeks. Um, vocationally, I'm a teacher. Um, I served in youth ministry for about six years um, and um, studied at Regent College, which is where I met my wife, Esther. Um, and currently, I am teaching middle school, um, working in the, I guess, the public square, public-private square. Um, I teach middle school Spanish and math, and um, it's a privilege um, to be um, called to that vocational call. Um, but there are, these are some of the ways I'm known um, as a husband, a father, a teacher. Um, but one of the other ways that I'd like to be known is to be known as a prayer, by which I mean a person of prayer, someone who is caught up into the life of God. And it's specifically this idea of prayer, a person who prays about whom we'll talk this morning. If you've journeyed with us this summer, you know that we're in this Armor of God series. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, so I'm going to read that block for us, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, and I'm going to read from the NIV. That's what I have this morning. I know a lot of us are bent towards the ESV, but this is what I have. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And verse 18 is specifically what we're going to focus on this morning. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when we talk about prayer, I think most of us understand prayer as an activity. It's something that we do. You might often uh, describe the idea of prayer as an action. Let us pray. Um, 
Prayer has often been described as something really difficult to start and begin, but really rewarding when finished, much like when you haven't worked out for a while and you're trying to get started, and just that amount of, I I guess, oomph that's needed to get started is analogous to the life of prayer. There are countless books on prayer that are instructive on how we should pray, But here in our text this morning, I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul is on about. He isn't offering a how-to instructional guide, as important as that may be. Prayer is also sometimes used as an adjective, as to refer to a prayer meeting, or a prayer closet, or a prayer life. The last term in particular, which is fraught with all kinds of problems, not least of which is a dualistic view of life, as if there's life and then there's prayer life. However, prayer is rarely understood and spoken about, I think, in our modern or postmodern day, as a person. A prayer is a person of prayer. And from our passage this morning, verse 18 speaks specifically about prayer. And I offer you this translation from Gordon Fee, uh, one of my New Testament professors from Regent. Can you hit the slide? It goes like this. Through each prayer, through every prayer and request, praying at all times in the Spirit, and to this end, staying alert, with perseverance and prayer for all the saints. Now, I know this doesn't do us much good. In the the English, it sounds really wonky and broken and strange to our ears. But in the original language, the verb presented in verse 18, they're not imperatives. It doesn't say, hey, pray. It doesn't say, hey, be alert. It doesn't say that. They're not imperatives, and I think a lot of the English translations have rendered it as such. But rather, the verbs are participles. Now, this is our back-to-school special for students who are here, back at school, thinking, what are participles? Maybe even adults are thinking, what are participles? Participles normally describe the noun preceding that participial phrase. So... The question that we should be asking is, what is praying and staying alert? Or more specifically, who is praying and staying alert? It's not an imperative. It's not a command, even though I think we can take it as such. But it's this idea that whoever is described in verse 17, those who take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, this soldier dressed and clothed in the armor of God, by definition, is one who is praying and staying alert. In other words, a Christian, as we've talked about week in and week out this summer, is someone clothed in the armor of God. A Christian is someone who draws near to God and to whom God draws near. A Christian is someone empowered by the Spirit. 
And such, a Christian is a prayer, a person of prayer. Now, I mention all this because the Apostle Paul is, considered, is concerned far less in this letter about the activity of prayer and more about the formation of the person as a prayer. His sights are not set on the praxis of prayer, the things we say. He is looking at the personhood of the prayer, the who we are becoming. With that in mind, the first point this morning is this. To be a prayer is to inhabit God's story and to reflect his image. And in parentheses, I wrote in your bulletin, you might see the word ontology. It's just another fancy word for reality, how we kind of see reality and identity. Now, in God's reality, he is the primary actor. And we participate in his drama and his sweeping movements of history, his story. And how we live into this reality is often reflected in how we pray. As one theologian um, puts it on the next slide, all of life is to be prayed, he says, not just lived. All of life is to be prayed, not just lived. But oftentimes, we pray, I think, as those who forget that God is in charge. We compartmentalize and often subscribe to a framework mentioned earlier of living life and then having a prayer life. Often we pray as, as if we have the insider information on this earth and we have to somehow relay that information to God out there so that he knows how to enter into our lives and answer our prayers. For example, you might have heard a prayer like this, or you might have prayed this kind of prayer. Okay, it's coming from me, so I'm not thinking of someone singular in this room. So pray with me. God, you know I have a test on American history this Friday in Mr. Fisher's social studies class during third period in room 205, which I know nothing about, so please help me get an A, and I will never bother my siblings again. Amen. Okay. In a way, we bargain with God we ask for signs and wonders. And while God sometimes allows the A, it was a very easy test, first week of school, very little studying needed. And sometimes God allows a sign or a wonder or an open door or an answer to a multitude of our prayers. These are gifts. That's what they are. They're gifts. They're, they're gifts because God is gracious. These prayers are full of descriptive words, but seemingly locates the person here on earth at the center of the story as the key player with God introduced later to pepper in some of his prayer dust, so to speak. 
Now, there's a danger of relating to God in this way because I think these types of prayers, I would argue, do not form us and shape us as persons of prayer. They do not help us inhabit God's story with God front and center. Ephesians, I would argue, takes a different approach on prayer. The triune God in Ephesians is front and center. The first three chapters of Ephesians is his story in history, which we read about and are invited to inhabit. Ephesians paints a reality that shapes and informs our identities as Christians. And in many ways, Paul's letter tries to reshape and remold our identities and realities that have been largely altered, forgotten, distorted, and messed up through sin. It started with our forefathers, Adam and Eve, when they grasped for a certain reality that was beyond their reach, that God did not make available to them. It was called the tree of knowledge of, knowledge of good and evil. And the pursuit of knowledge itself wasn't the sin. It was the pursuit of something that was beyond their grasp, reaching for and laying hold of a knowledge which God did not make available to them. It was a pivotal, reality-altering, identity-reshaping moment in history. Now, for those student scholars in this room who take Latin or who have taken Latin, you should know that the root of the word reality is the Latin word res, meaning a property, a possession, or a thing. And this is where we get the term real estate. It conjures up the idea of ownership. It's a word that talks about possessing and taking hold of or claiming this piece of property as mine. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed and claimed and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, their reality went from one of trust and of love and of communion with the triune God to one of distrust and exclusion and exile. Their zip code literally went from 90210 to, you can fill in the blank. I was going to say 30062, but I know some of you live in that zip code with me. <laughs> and I'm largely indebted to Parker Palmer and his insights on this topic. And by extension, as related to prayer, one has to ask, whose story do I inhabit when I pray? Whose image am I reflecting as I become a person of prayer? Do my re prayers reflect a reality of possessing and claiming and seizing? Even if the things that I claim and lay hold of are, are good gifts from God that he gifts us. And while there is nothing wrong with these gifts themselves, the reality 
that the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians is quite different. It's not a reality chasing after these gifts, but one in which the gift is discovered in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's view of prayer has less to do with the outcomes and byproducts and results of prayer, but rather how our prayers shape and form us into union with Christ. Prayers for the Apostle Paul is more about becoming people who reflect the image of God, the image tainted and tarnished by our love for real estate, res, and all things, I guess, monopoly-related. The Apostle Paul understood this, so he spends a good chunk of Ephesians shaping the identity, shaping the reality of the early church, specifically as those who are found in Christ. Which leads me to my second point, that to be a prayer, a person of prayer, is to become the new self in Christ. Not only is this person's identity being shaped, not only is their reality kind of being shifted from what it was after the fall, but this reality is being formed in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's a transformative experience. Now, chapters 1 through 3 can arguably be one long prayer that Paul makes. And so I'm kind of harking back to what life of a prayer looks like by looking at Paul and his prayer for us in the book of Ephesians. So in chapter 1, this is what he writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesians was written to an audience of Jews and Greeks. Jews who were the first inheritors of the gospel had to make room for Greeks to enter this union, this family of Christ. And so this idea that Paul is saying, our Lord Jesus Christ includes this bunch, this group of outsiders who were for a long time cast out. And he continues, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now we talk about this struggle being against, not against flesh and blood, but against the, the principalities in the heavenly places. And here Paul is saying, even though you wear this armor of God, Christ owns the heavenly places. And we are being blessed in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, a prayer, a person of prayer is formed and transformed into the image of the living Christ. Here we find language of sonship and daughtership. We are adopted into his family. Jesus Christ is our older brother. We have a seat at the table of the throne of grace because he chose us and called us his own even before the foundation of the world. And we can call God Abba, Father. 
Now, this is no how-to instructional manual on prayer. You might be thinking, like, I thought this was about prayer. What's, what's going on? This is about identity of the prayer. Last Christmas, um, Manny, our son, asked for this Lego set. He's really into Legos. He said, Mom, Dad, can you buy us this for Christmas? And in our hearts, it was a yes. It was a declarative yes, okay? Because he's our son, and we love him, okay? But we asked him to write a letter to us. It was sort of two-prong kind of approach. We wanted him to, like, practice his writing and so forth. So he wrote this letter saying, Dear Mom and Dad, I would like this Lego set. Um, he, it was the actual name. I don't know. It was one of the mechs from Ninjago. And he wanted it, and he wrote this letter. Now, why did we ask him to do that? Okay. I think, similarly, the way we pray to God even though we make petitions to God and we pray to him, and in some regards, we know whether he'll say yes or no because he's a loving father. Okay? Sometimes we say no to our kids like candy before dinner, or we say yes to this like Christmas present. But partly it's because I think there's a formative thing happening. Okay? There's this identity-shaping thing happening in this economy of God that's a mystery to us in large part that helps us to become a prayer. Now, this is formation language. All of this that Paul is praying, of course, isn't a how-to manual. He doesn't say, get on your knees. He doesn't say, close your eyes. He doesn't say, fold your hands. This is how you pray. But he's preaching the gospel to help people become prayers. Paul is reminding his listeners that they have been transformed into the image of Christ. God has taken our reality, our res, and ushered us into the heavenly realm. Later in chapter 2, Paul continues where he writes, but God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. I don't know what you think in terms of your Christian identity, but to be raised up with Christ with the dunamis, the dynamite power that raised Christ from the dead, from the grave, is what Paul is talking about in this passage. And not only has he raised us up with him, he seated us in the heavenly places with him in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might know where we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Again, God's people, the armor of God is not just an individual suit. It's to the people of God, us, in Christ Jesus. We were once dead in our former reality, hopeless, in bondage, 
enslaved to the spiritual forces of evil. But God, in his great love and mercy for us, not only breathed new life into us, but raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. In God's res, in his story, we are not beggars at the foot of the table trying to like scrape up crumbs. We're like, we're seated with him. This is like the VIP table. VIP table that it's not like a, we got like a VIP pass just for the day. God is saying that we are VIP. And it's all because God loved us and called us his own. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. Okay, he's like, chapter 1, chapter 2, this is who you are. This is your reality. Don't forget. And so he continues in this prayer. He writes, I pray that out of his glorious riches, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Can we read the rest together? One, two, three, go. Two, grasp how wide. No, this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The gift talked about here, given to a prayer, a person of prayer, is Jesus Christ himself. The spirit who shapes our inner beings to become like Christ works in the hearts of all believers who are being formed as prayers, as people of prayer. Now, to be a prayer is to be formed and transformed into this new self in Christ. Our old selves are put away, and we have been raised up with Christ. But we realize that we do not inhabit the space alone. If you look around, okay, you're seated with other people, other believers, what Paul calls all the Lord's holy people. So we are in the company of other saints, communing and fellowshipping with the triune God. I think Adrian von Speer describes this mystery really well in her little book on the world of prayer. She writes, No real definition of prayer can be given, for it is a mysterious life with God, a participation in the center of his being, and in his divine triune love. Paul describes how we are members of Christ's body, but also how we are members and part of each other. In a very tangible way, the Apostle Paul reminds us that a person of prayer is not just one person. A prayer, a person of prayer, cannot be content having just a singular personal relationship 
with Jesus and call it a day. A prayer, by definition, is someone who is a member of the living body of Christ. But to take it a step further, a person of prayer, in a lot of ways, is an oxymoron, like a churchless Christian or an honest thief. A prayer is inherently embedded into a community of believers and joined together with other prayers to comprise God's people of prayer. Thus, a person of prayer is always found among a people of prayer. This community of prayers begins to see and name reality in a new light. This community of prayers like the Apostle Paul, speaks life-forming, identity-shaping, reality-altering truths into each other's lives. Karl Barth writes this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. The people of God, the army of God, those who wear God's armor, begin to see that prayer extends way beyond ourselves and into the lives of others around us. How can God's people of prayer remain watchful and ready in service to others so that God's story becomes the one imprinted on people's hearts and minds? I'm going to do one more quote for you guys before we go over some questions. Um, But this is from James Houston, who is the founding principal at Regent College. He writes this in a book he wrote called Prayer, The Transforming Friendship. Prayer develops us as a whole people before God. To pray to God is to be a complete person before God, a person as God has always intended us to be. It is to be open, to confess, to be forgiven, cleansed, humbled, obedient, sustained, guided, strengthened, and daily renewed and inspired. Prayer radically transforms broken people into new people, people newly created by God. Now, um, Tim asked me to kind of follow his structure and give some points Often he calls them lessons, and then there's like application questions. And um, I've always observed, and I don't know where you stand on this, his application questions are never really applications, which to me I'm really grateful for because the work of applying um, a heard message or God's truth is like individual work. It's like rigorous work that you have to do. I'm not here to serve um, like a packaged, piecemealed, bite-sized something for you to walk away with, okay? But, okay, having said that, but there are five questions in your bulletin that I think would be helpful in your own sort of reflecting on your journey as a prayer, a person of prayer. So I'm not talking about like your habits. I'm not talking about like your discipline around prayer. I'm talking about identity forming, 
identity shaping, the way you look at reality, okay? And the way I want to sort of close this out is to give you my answers to some of these questions. So this is like me having sat with these questions and said, this is how I would answer it by way of some anecdotes, okay? And I would encourage you to kind of wrestle through some of these questions, okay? Um, The first question says, how do you hear yourself when you pray? Do you sound authentic and real? Are you sharing as one who acknowledges that God knows your requests even before you ask them, or even as one who doesn't know what it is he or she should pray for? Now, for folks who don't know, I'm Korean ethnically, and at home, I speak in Korean to our kids. Um, my wife Esther speaks in English, and we try to create this like environment of bilingualism, so to speak. And so when we pray, I pray in Korean. And sometimes our son will mimic that. So he'll kind of take like a deeper tone and go, Hananim, which is like, God, 사랑합니다, we love you. And he'll kind of parrot what he hears me say, which is normal. In a Christian home, if you've grown up in a Christian home or you're kind of fostering um, you know, a Christian home with your kids, that's how I think you share prayer or the life of prayer at home. And that's the work, the formative work. Um, now, that's going to happen until our, our kids own their faith and can declare and pray and use words on their own. But for me personally, as I got older, I continued to parrot what I heard from other people, like youth pastors or senior pastors. Um, like what they said kind of stuck out at me is that that sounded really spiritual. So the next time I pray, let me use that. It's kind of part of my prayer playbook, so to speak. And this passage in particular that we've been journeying through this summer has been really kind of like to me because um, I used to pull from this section of Ephesians all the time. Um, When we would send people off to the missionary field or like pray for someone or pray over someone, you know, and they... The pastor would say, Brian, can you pray for David? And I would pray, and I would say, Lord, equip this person with the shield of faith. Help this person wear the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Like, I would pray this prayer as if that person wasn't already wearing the armor of God. All summer we've been saying a Christian is someone who wears the armor of God. It's not an extra. It's not an add-on. It's not like the, the suit coming on. You know, it's not that. But why was I praying that way? Now, to pray that prayer, I don't know was, I don't know if that was authentic. I think some of my most authentic prayers were prayed with very little words in silence before the living Christ to encounter him rather than to tell him what to do. For me, 
praying scripture, even though I was quoting scripture, I don't know if I was necessarily praying scripture. And for me, praying scripture has often taken me to the book of Psalms. The Psalter has often been called in the Christian tradition, the prayer book of God's people. And so I would pray the Psalms. I wouldn't pray and then pray the Psalms and then pray to close out my prayer time. I would just pray the Psalm. That would be my prayer. And I would be in God's presence, meeting the living Christ, along with a tradition of God's people having prayed that same prayer. Um, The second question I want to just share my answers to, my reflections, um, are about this question. Who is your audience when you pray? Yourself, others, or God? Now, when I was in school, and I'm talking way back in middle school, elementary school, um, I would go to school, and it would be time for lunch. Okay, I went to public school in Philly. That's where I grew up. And I would be embarrassed to pray because it was cafeteria-style seating, and it seemed like everyone just sat down and ate. I didn't see anyone sit down and pray. So it was, there was this tension, like, what do I do? I, I, I learned prayer at home. It was habituated. It was normalized. But this is not the kitchen table. This is, this is the cafeteria table. I don't really know these people in the way I know my family. So there would be this internal tension and struggle to try to pray, but to do it in a way that was not as embarrassing. So I would do the sweeping movement with my arm, like I'm rubbing my eyes and yawning at the same time and go, dear Lord, thank you for this food in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Or I would bend down and pretend I'm tying my shoelaces and I think even there were days when I wrote, like, wore shoes with, like, Velcro. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about. But it was like I, st- I still have to bend over and, and pray because it was embarrassing. Now, I bring up this, this anecdote because, for me, my audience wasn't an I-thou with God. Okay? And this is a very um, innocuous, I would say, maybe, um, example. Um, But it was also, I would say, formative in the sense that it taught me, and even in those moments, God was pressing me for more. And the whole internal tension of, I know God wants more, but I'm embarrassed. Oh, shoot, what do I do? That in and of itself, I think, is a formative process. And I'm going to share one more anecdote. Okay. can we go to question four? It says, how do you see yourself as a person of prayer? I think it's a really important question. Okay. Do you see yourself as part of God's people of prayer? Now, in my younger years, I'm still young, but in my younger, younger years, um, I remember going out to eat with my small group leader. Okay. And this person was a respected in- individual of the church. Many would even call this person a person of prayer. And we went to this restaurant, and we sat down to eat, but it was one of those restaurants where, like, service is a little bit, like, overbearing. 
Like they kind of come up to you and they pour water like every 10, 10 like seconds and they're asking, how's the meal? And, you know, so we were approached by the wait staff maybe like three times. And I think on the fourth time, this person came to pour water. Would you like some more water? And my small group leader said, um, if I could have the chance to finish my water first. And I sat there. I said, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? And then, shortly after, he proceeded to ask me about my prayer life. How is your prayer life, Brian? I said, oh, that's good. And we talked about that for a little bit. And then the meal came, and the small group leader said, let us pray for the meal. And he prayed and blessed the hands who served this meal. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was sitting there, and this story was unfolding in front of me. And I've you know, processed over time, and it's a story that's kind of stuck with me. Um, but there was this stark contrast between this action of prayer, being asked about this action of prayer, versus a personhood formed in the life of prayer. Um, and this stark contrast for me um, has helped me, in part, to place a certain amount of weight and significance on your identity as a prayer, a person of prayer. And what does that look like? How is that being shaped? What is the reality to which we live? Now, to close this out, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray from Paul's prayer that we just referenced. So will you pray with me? Lord, I pray this morning that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.